The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. With Oscar season upon us, we wanted to call attention to two conversations with directors whose films have been shortlisted for Oscars that you can watch now on Netflix. First, we spoke with Margaret Brown about her film Descendant, which has been shortlisted for the Best Documentary Feature Academy Award. This brilliantly multi-layered film follows the descendants of the last American slave ship, the Clotilda. We explored with her how she juxtaposed their oral history with the search for the actual ship. I found this film to be a compelling mix of history, poetry, and advocacy for environmental justice. Secondly, we spoke with Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy about the Martha Mitchell effect, which has been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Documentary Short. Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General and Nixon campaign chief John Mitchell, was dismissed at the time of Watergate as being crazy and a drunk. She was, in fact, the victim of a well-planned gaslighting campaign hatched by Nixon, his top aides, and even her own husband. Stunning in its revelations and highly immersive in its creative approach, this powerful film will grant you a new perspective on those dark days of American history. You can see both of these films now on Netflix. Today, I spoke with Simon Laring Wilmot about his film House Made of Splinters, which has been shortlisted for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The film focuses on children in a Ukrainian shelter where they reside while they await for the authorities to determine whether they will return to their families, be adopted by others, or move on to an orphanage. As you'll hear, I found this film very affecting. We not only feel like we are watching these children as they attempt not just to survive, but to thrive despite their circumstances, but Wilmot makes us feel like we are living through this ordeal with them. Wilmot has previously been shortlisted for The Distant Barking of Dogs, also set in war-tour in Ukraine. House Made of Splinters premiered last year at Sundance, where it won Wilmot the World Cinema Documentary Directing Award, and it has been nominated and won several other awards. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to the podcast, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Simon Luring Wilmont about House Made of Splinters. Simon, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you very much. Your film is set at what's called the Center for the Social and Psychological Rehabilitation of Children in Eastern Ukraine. Can you tell us about this institution and how you found it? Yeah, it's like a temporary governmental safe house where kids from broken down families near the northern parts of the front line are taken when their families can't take care of them anymore. The film is more roughly maybe about children's remarkable ability to adapt and to survive and to kind of find the magic in life despite tragic circumstances. What drew you to this particular institution? It's actually due to my previous films. While shooting that film, I became aware that there might be a lot of kids that were actually left in very vulnerable situations where there were nobody left to take care of them or their guardians or parents of some sort weren't able to due to the war or due to social difficulties. And when we started researching this, me and my amazing assistant director, Ukrainian, we found out that it was actually like a growing problem and a problem that was looking like it would spiral out of control. 
And then we were invited to the northern part of the front line in eastern Ukraine by the local administration there to see for ourselves. And that's how we found the shelter. Let's talk about the very opening of the film. It's dark. We hear what we imagine to be either thunder or maybe the weapons of war. And maybe we also hear some barking of dogs in the distance. We see a title card comes up and says, Ukraine, 20 kilometers from the front. Now, for our audience, we probably should clarify what front we're talking about here, because they may think that this is February of 2022, but actually it's earlier. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct, Michael. It was located near the Ukrainian city of Lysychansk, which is 20 kilometers from the front line of the war in 2019, roughly one, one and a half years before the current invasion. And the city of Lysychansk, where the shelter is located, is, as we write, it's roughly 20 kilometers directly to the trenches from there. Russia has been waging a kind of a shadow war in, in eastern Ukraine, and of course, in Crimea for many years, and these children are in the shadow of that war. And again, this may be a little confusing for some viewers. As they're listening, they may say, wait a minute, are these folks speaking Russian? I think all of them speak Russian and Ukrainian as well. They're brought up learning both uh, languages in school. But since it's been so close to the Russian border, also there's a majority that uses, or at least then used Russian probably as a primary language. In terms of the war, the narrator of the film, who I believe is the center's head, who's Miss Margarita, she says that these children, that the war does play a role, that there's always been children like this, but the war has increased their number, increased their plight. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it didn't take long for us to sit down and talk to Margarita and the social workers that were bringing the kids to her shelter to learn that, that for every child that was in the shelter, they would, could easily fit 10 more that they couldn't take because of there was no room. What we learned throughout the year, one and a half years of filming is that number is like exponentially, was exponentially growing. And that's part of the reason why the city administration actually wanted us to come because it was also some kind of cry for help, I think. It's interesting because just after this sort of notice of where we are, we see the children in the shelter, I'd call it probably for this purpose, awakened. It's a cheerful scene. The children seem to be relatively happy, surprisingly, and the caretakers are kind, seem loving, seem invested in the children. I think this is really good because I think a lot of us have assumptions about quote unquote orphanages as bad places. And frankly, I'll be honest with you, Simon, from where I sit in the U.S., I think we have preconceptions about especially homes like this in Eastern Europe. We yeah. hear about the horrors of Russian orphanages. We maybe even call back to Cicescu drawing from the Romanian orphanages, supposedly for his most loyal bodyguards. But I, th I think you were trying to set the record straight a little bit here. Is that right? Both yes and no, Michael. Before I came to that shelter, I actually was on a, a longer research period along with my assistant director, where we were taking a lot of the orphanages in the area because there was actually quite a few. And a lot of these orphanages were not as bad as you describe it, but more closely too. It was like very huge institutionalized places that were very good at taking care of the kids, you know, physical needs, but maybe not so good at taking care of the emotional needs. And one of the reasons why I actually chose to make a film was because when the first time I entered Margarita's shelter, it was a completely different feeling from the very second I set foot across the threshold. 
you know, there were carpets on the floors. Yeah, it was a little bit small and was very worn out, but there were kids' drawings on the wall and there was a beautiful old lady who was like trying to teach the kids music, even though she might not even be so good herself. And at the end of the corridor, I saw Margarita and she was hugging two kids while she was telling somebody off in the phone. And it was just such a complete different feeling from those very institutionalized places that I visited previously. And it was so heartwarming and it felt like there was something very different here. And that's actually when I first started to think, okay, I could actually make a film from these parts. And because I want hope in my film, I don't do just tragedies. I always look for the hope that can inspire us. And that's, I think, what I got a glimpse of in Margarita's place and what I wanted to find out is, is this just a fluke or is it like this most of the time in this place? I can see that fairly early in your film, you have what I think of kind of a mirror, two mirror scenes, one with the girls at the shelter and one with the boys. And let's start with the girls. They're dancing to kind of a club song of the enraptured singer calling out for support uh, from the DJ. And it's an amazing juxtaposition because it's a very sophisticated adult song that we imagine set in kind of a glamorous club, but the children are dancing in a very dilapidated room. But I found so many scenes like this where the children's, they're lost for life and they're lost to just be kids and fall in love and find friendships and all those beautiful things that happen in life. And I noticed them right away and I thought it was so beautiful exactly or maybe even more so because of the worn out and place that they were spending their time now away from their troubled families. So for me, there was something very magical in trying to find these moments in time where the beauty of life and the most important stuff about growing up, exactly finding friends and falling in love, where that also has a place in an otherwise very tragic world. Before the boys scene, there's kind of an interstitial scene that bring the girls and boys together in which one of the girls writes a love letter to one of the boys who rebuffs her. And we all recognize this. I mean, this brings back, you know, elementary school or middle school for all of us, right? Yeah. And yet there's something about it that seems a little more urgent to me because of their situation. One of the things that I thought was so magical in this scene, but also terrible in another way, is that slowly you understand that these kids, they're acting out things that we might recognize from our past. But once you go into what they're saying and where they're gathering their own experience from and who they're imitating, the adult life that they're imitating outside is very different from what most of us would recognize. So we understand that the girls are more adult for their age than they should be maybe. And the boys have seen stuff, what their fathers or their uncles have done to women, their mothers or their grandmothers even. That is a very rough world outside and they imitate this world. Yeah, absolutely. So the boys scene, again, at first seems very reminiscent, right? You know, sleepovers when you were a kid or camping, which is ghost stories. Let's tell ghost stories, horror stories, right? And so it's very reminiscent. But as you point out, it's different because the boy tells a story about, let me tell you a crazy story about my father. He drinks too much. And one day my mother came home with her paycheck. And my father stabbed her. And then when he got out of prison, he came home and my mother forgave him. So they celebrated with a bottle of champagne and they got drunk again. And it's this perfect kind of Chekhovian short story. The boy does seem to grasp the absurdity of it. But wow, so affecting. Yeah. And maybe probably the most tragic thing is as soon as he's done talking, 
instead of shock in the other boys' eyes and their comments, it's more like, yeah, dad's drunk fucks and my dad just exactly the same. And then they start laughing about it. It's not an uncommon story to tell and it's not shocking to any of these guys. And that's in some way it has become a strange sort of entertainment for them when they have to scare each other instead of demons under the bed. It's like, you know, what did your dad do to your family? Absolutely. And I think this is one of your themes in the film a little bit is this circle, right? Um, as soon as the one boy ends his story, the other boy says, let me tell you my story and how all the stories are the same and yet different. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that we learned from sitting down and spending so much time with Margarita and her fellow colleagues was that some of them have been working there for 25, 30 years. And it was so terrifying to hear their experience that from when they started up, the kids that they were taking care of at that point in time are now the moms that they're meeting with their own kids. And wonderful girl that they'd said goodbye to years ago is now coming back as the drunk mom that has to sober up to get her own child back. So there's a circle of repetition and that circle is has to be broken in some ways. And that's what Margarita and all of her colleagues are desperately trying to do. But it's also a very hard thing to do. Right after we finish with these two scenes, we seem to settle in a bit on Eva, a young girl whose mother's clearly alcoholic. We actually meet Eva before the title, where she fails in calling her mother, but we now see her reaching her mother. And this is an amazing phone conversation in which her mother seems to focus almost exclusively on her own plight, her own loneliness. And she even says that Eva is driving her to her grave. And I think we all understand, anyone who's a parent understands that parenting is hard, you have bad days, and we all know that addiction is a credible beast that breaks you. However, this depiction of Eva's mother is just, she seems unredeemable. Can you explain why you wanted to include this? I think in, in a lot of ways, this was one of the most difficult scenes to bear witness to because the child is all of a sudden expected to be the adult to a drunk mom who behaves like a child. And in that case, we see Eva almost realizing and resigning that this is going to be her fate. She's never coming back to that mom. I think she realizes that she doesn't even want to get back to this mom in this scene because she will never change. And Eva will be stuck taking care of her for the rest of her life because the mom is simply not able to sober up. And that's the hard circumstances. And there's no getting around that what is the blessing in her case and the reason why I felt that we could actually include Eva's so terrible or hard destiny is that her case actually ends up taking a turn for the positive when her beloved grandmother actually finally adopts Eva and to take her home. For me, that kind of symbolizes the hope that she could get back at least a little bit of that childhood that her unfit mother had actually stolen from her. Can you talk a little bit about the informed consent, because I think watching this film, especially early on with Eva on the phone with her mom, I was wondering, how do we obtain informed consent in such a situation? Yeah, I know it was a huge job getting all the legal requirements, but also moral, you know, requirements of actually getting to a place where we felt that we would be entitled to make this film. So we were working along with the social ministry and the social workers and the local government the whole time. And we had a very beautiful working relationship in that regard. I learned so much from them. They also helped us in the end to obtain some of the permits. It was a huge job getting that informed consent, especially because 
We have to get it from several parts. In a lot of the cases, kids go in, they have a parent who's still the legal guardian, we get consent, but then through the film, they're adopted by the state or they go to a foster family, we have to get a new consent. And also, obviously, for Kolya's mom, also, we have to get consent from her. So yeah, it was a job. Not difficult, but just an enormously time-consuming, actually. I think this is really interesting concerning the structure of your film, because when I saw the camera starting to fall more on Ava, Eva, I thought, okay, this is going to be the spine of the film. Her story is going to be the spine. We know there's a nine-month clock. We're going to follow her over the next 90 minutes as we see what her fate is. However, that's not what happens in the film, which is pretty quickly. In fact, within the first 30 minutes, first 30 year film, we see a quick resolution. The court or the authorities decide, hey... Mom's out, Eva's grandmother can bring her home, and we see her go in the car, we see her arrive at her grandparents' humble, but clearly full of love, home. Can you talk about that choice to like short-circuit you know, your expectations of your audience pretty quickly? Well, what happened was that I was actually thinking about Eva actually being the protagonist of the whole story. And then when she got taken out of the house, it dawned on me, that's how it works in this place. Even though it says a nine-month period, the kids can be out of there in one month, in eight months. Some even extend the stay of the nine months. So it's a place where the kids are constantly going in and out. And that kind of also opened me up to a lot of the other fates that were around at that point in time. And obviously, both Kolyans and Sasha came to the shelter quickly afterwards. And when I met these guys, it became very apparent that it would be suited well to follow them as, or I couldn't help myself to be quite honest. I couldn't help myself to follow them also. So it became a three part instead of a one part. Yeah. And I think one of the things this does is it actually makes their stories all that much more stark. I understand there's hope here, but also you get a sense of the tragic dimensions of their stories. And we'll come back to Sasha and Kolya in a second, but I want to talk about some of your other filmic approaches because this film is an incredibly amazing character study of these children and some of the folks who work at the shelter, but you also do some other great things. I want to talk about one of the things around your interior scenes, and of course, super crucial for the story. One of the things I thought that you did that was very interesting was how you used walls of the hallway, or in some cases, the rooms as sort of a framing device for your shots. Yeah, I understand it's cramped quarters. Some of this is necessitated by where you're shooting, but I thought it was also a choice in many cases as well. Yeah, it is. First of all, I find a lot of beauty in those frame shots. And it was so important for me to find that amidst this very worn out place also. But I also like it as a frame to center our attention on something very specific. So it's definitely a part of my cinematic approach. And you use it very powerfully, I think, in many scenes. I want to talk about one. You often use it, I think, to provide more information than just what's at the center of the shot. So example would be Miss Margarita on the phone speaking about one of the children's cases, doesn't matter which in this case. And we look around and we can see on the left side, we see children's books low and the more clinical books high. And on the right side, we see toys on shelves and then sort of falling onto the floor. There's so many. And then we see a chart, a pyramidal chart. It could be Piaget's developmental stages or Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then we see the calendar, which is so crucial, right? The clock is ticking on all these kids. So uh, yeah. it, I think you, you're providing us a lot of information in these shots beyond the center. Yeah. In this shot, it's an elderly lady sitting in her office talking on the phone. But what's so important for me is we all know this situation. So in this case, 
it might not be so necessarily that we're so close that we can study her facial features. What's more important is her beautiful but small and cramped office was so filled with personality. There were gifts from kids that she had hung up, small personal memorabilia. Amidst all of this, also very professional and necessary office tools. So all of that and that speaks to me of a person or describes a person to me who's not afraid to let, you know, the personal mix with the work life. And in her case, that's exactly how it is. She doesn't just leave work when she goes home every day. She brings it with her home also. And Simon, I also think that really crucial to your film, and I think it could be missed, are the exterior scenes. And from the very opening, the title, we see the shelter, which is sort of this Soviet-style looking rundown building, overgrown kind of. And then there's all sorts of external images. And I think they're really important. I think they give us almost literally air in the film, but they do other work. One thing they seem to do, and you have rain and you have snow and you have swollen rivers, is I think they really give us a sense of the passage of time in terms of the course of the day, but also the cycle of the seasons. Exactly. Time is, of course, one of the most crucial elements in this film because it's a temporary shelter and the kids can stay there for nine months. So the passage of time is like our internal clock that in some ways calms us or stresses us out because we know that these kids' cases are maybe nearing a conclusion or maybe they have a lot of time left, you know, so it's a way of working into the storyline, maybe subconsciously, that where we are in the timeline of the cases of the kids that we're following. Yeah, I think also, again, it fits the sort of theme of cyclical nature of things. And also, I'll tell you one thing I think it does for me, or did for me at least, is it made me feel like I was with these children for longer than 90 minutes. It made me feel like I was with them and it created this sort of relationship with them that was deeper. Like I said, you can miss this. The exterior scenes are extremely important. Without them, I think it wouldn't have been as deep a relationship. So they're wonderfully done. Thank you for that. All right. So let's talk about the characters who make up the latter two thirds of the film. And we'll focus, I think, on Sasha, who's a girl of five. How old is she at the start? No, she's actually nine. Oh, my. Well, yeah. that's fascinating. So I was way off in terms of age. I thought Kolya was probably about nine. No, he's 13. Wow. At that point in time. Yeah, what happens is if they don't get the right the nutrition, then they don't grow as much. And that's why a lot of these kids actually look a bit younger than they are. It's an interesting mix because they seem younger in some ways and older in other ways. But let's start with Sasha. She's basically introduced as Eva departs and the narrator says, who's Miss Margarita, as one leaves, another arrives. And again, our cyclical theme. And her story is in many ways very close to Eva's, but in some ways worse. She at least seems younger and in some ways more vulnerable. Her mother seems completely out of the picture. There doesn't seem to be a grandmother waiting in the wings. Like Her story is very close to Eva's, but more extreme. The strange thing is that what actually drew me to Sasha was that she seemed to have an inner strength that Eva couldn't quite match at all. And that taken into account that Sasha is so much younger than Eva. You know, when she first came to the shelter, normally when the kids come, it's like with a lot of crying and a lot of, I want to go back to my mom and stuff. But it was quite the opposite with Sasha. It was like she was walking into Willy Wonka's Wonderland and everything was exciting. She wasn't reaching out. It was like she was in her own little world, but she didn't seem sad. Quite the contrary, almost. Uh, and that kind of really drew me to her because that was so different from a lot of the other kids that I'd witnessed coming to the shelter. 
yeah, her story's worse in some ways, but she does seems to have some sense of calm within. There's an interesting scene early on where she's playing with this voice-activated doll. It's kind of a frustratingly obdurate voice-activated doll. Again, it seems freighted in some way. The doll says, can we be friends? And she's, I don't know about that. There's a sense of which she wants to bond, but there's a little bit of concern about that too. This is one of my absolute favorite scenes because that was cinema magic for me. Like, it's such a gift to have her get this doll as a Christmas present and then sitting up when everybody else is practicing or running around playing, you know, she finds a quiet place and she starts playing with the doll and the doll moves and the doll speaks and the doll behaves like a, a difficult adult or a difficult friend in some ways. So she becomes the powerful part in this relationship in a lot of ways, whereas the doll is asking for her love all the time, but she, yeah, let's see, it depends on if you behave well. And for me, that was, that's why I love documentary so much is sometimes it's lighter than fiction. You know, if you wrote this in fiction, people would say, no, stuff like that never happens, you know. And it seems to mirror the scene a little bit with her. And is it Paulina or Alina? Well, she's called Alina, but when she gets adopted, they changed her name to Paulina. So that's okay. probably. Uh, I understand. And she shyly asked Alina to be her best friend. Alina's not so sure. She praises Alina's beauty and smarts. And Alina will only grant that she likes Sasha when Sasha is well behaved. Again, this is very reminiscent and familiar. We see young kids, maybe especially young girls, talking to each other this way. But the stakes seem really high, I think, in some ways, too, right? For Sasha, this is one of her few relationships in the world at this point. Yeah, exactly. After spending quite some time at the shelter, she slowly starts to relax and gets her to open up a little bit more. And that's where she opens up for the first time and actually reaches out to somebody she's interested in asking for friendship. And then we have, as you said, like almost a mirror scene, but with the roles reversed with the doll and her, because she meets a girl who looks almost like the doll, quite amazingly, you know? But in this encounter, Sasha is the one asking for love and the girl she's met, she's the one that's a little bit more standoffish and a little bit more powerful and keeping her off. But they end up becoming really good friends and it's a very beautiful relationship for me. And then they share secrets. Again, something we expect in creating intimacy. But the stories they tell are about alcohol consumption and consuming alcohol at the behest of their mothers. And it's unclear how true this is, but it seems like it's amazing that this is what they want to share at that age. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that conversation probably reflects the conversations that they've had on the playground with other kids from where they're from. And when you reach that level of commitment in some way, or if when you're there in that relationship, that's kind of like the truth that you're asking each other to get a sense of what's your family like, or what are you like? Are we like each other? Or are you from a completely different background? I would get. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's talk about Kolya. What a character, an amazing young boy on the verge of pubescence, just charismatic, funny and fun. But he's been in trouble with the police a few times. And we first see him, he's cleaning the walls because he's written on the walls. So we think he's tough and we've got a sense of who he is. But after we think we know who he is, you reveal this other side of him, right? So we have a scene where he's on the phone and suddenly there's siblings with him, two younger siblings, Zanya and Katrina. And then we'll see him dressing them and caring for them. He's also this loving brother. 
yeah, that's one of the things that makes him such a unique and such a powerful character is that he had this contrasting personalities, you know. One of them is the gang type, power hungry, dog eat dog, a guy, you know, that knows from his background that you have to fight your way through life to the top of the food chain if you want to get to a place where that's good to be. And that's what he's doing with the kind of like gang of older boys at the shelter. But at the same time, he's also a super caring and really sensitive big brother. And that has taken upon him probably years past already when his mom is not or his drunken dads are not able to take care of his siblings. He knows that he's the one and he's been doing that for so long. And the love that they have for him, I think is one of the very warm things in his life, probably one of the most important things in his life. And that's so well reflected in the way that he cares for them, I think. And the other thing you reveal on the phone call that's made is we now see, previously we'd seen his arm covered with this kind of ersatz tattooing that he'd done and it's now cleaned off. And now we see multiple scars on his arm where it looks like he's cut himself. And this is an incredible shorthand, I think, for him. This is his toughness and his vulnerability all kind of in one visual metaphor. I think you're exactly right. It didn't happen often, but from time to time, he would become very sad, obviously, because of all that, that he went through. We weren't there when he was doing those cuttings, but as we understood from the psychologist, it's a way of trying to channel out all of that grief and all of that sadness in a physical way and try to numb the pain and some to distract yourself. And as I said, he didn't do it a lot, but when he did, obviously, it's a very tragic and very sad thing, especially for a kid with so much brains and so much charm and so much potential. And I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian, but I am fascinated by the way he speaks. Despite not knowing the language, I get a sense that he's mixing in, you know, curse words and all this tough kind of prison bot language. But then he'll, it's very interesting when he talks about where he found the tattoos and he talks about copying from Vlad, who's this sort of kid he looks up to. There's a couple of Vlads, but this particular bigger Vlad he looks up to. He uses the word plagiarism, actually the word plagiarism, this Latinate word. I was so struck by that. That's one of the things that reveals that he's a very smart boy, he's so clever. And that's one of the reasons that he's actually able to maneuver in that dog-eat-dog relationship that the older boys have, because he's like knife sharp intellectually. And he can even speak a little bit of English and he can switch from the gang talk to the very refined adult talk, maybe even bureaucratic talk, if he has to. And I think that's very revealing. And when his mother finally does arrive, I was blown away. Like, I, it's made no sense to me. You're like, this is the alcoholic mother who can't care for these kids. She's young. She's fit. She's attractive. She's well-dressed. Were you as surprised as we were when you saw mom? No, we've met her before. Obviously, she came to the shelter because we needed to talk to her about the film and everything. But I think especially in the case of Kolya's mom, everyday life is very nuanced. And I'm not saying I, I condone any of her life choices. I don't at all. But once I started to find out about the particulars of her life, you start. I started at least to get an understanding of where she was and why she would make some of the choices that she did. And all in all, she lives a, lives a very nuanced and very hard life in that regard that she has nowhere to go. There is no alternative for her. And I think in 
her mind, having the kids taken to the shelter, she knows at least they get fed three times a day. They have a warm bed to sleep in and they don't have to listen to her drunken boyfriend or maybe even taking a beating from that drunken boyfriend. So do you keep your child in that reality or when you have no way of escaping that reality, what do you do as a mom? So I'm, again, I'm not saying I condone her choice, but in some ways she was one of the people I met outside of the shelter that began to give me a little bit more nuanced and a little broader understanding of the realities that these moms actually face. That's a good reminder that appearances can be deceiving and we need to you know, maintain compassion. So there are a number of other scenes that are around fate and change. Let's focus on one. So later in the film, we see Kolya, he's reading the story of the scorpion and the frog. And for those who don't know it, the scorpion asks for a ride across the river, I believe, on the frog's back, promises he won't sting the frog, and then he stings the frog. And the frog says, why did you do this? Now we'll both die. And he says, it's my nature. And again, another Latinate word comes right through the Russian, the Torah. And he asks his sister, what's the moral? And she says, the moral, you know, you shouldn't lie. And he says, no, very firmly, no, never trust people. And he's certainly right about the moral of the story. And despite the theme of hope, I was worried that maybe he was a little bit right about his life. In some ways, you are right. What his life has taught him from this point on. But as it actually happens, I just recently found out a couple of days ago that he's actually been adopted now. And he's oh, back great. in Ukraine in the western parts of Ukraine by a very resourceful and seemingly super well-to-do family who's taking him in and is caring for him and is trying to make sure that he can reestablish contact with his siblings. So I guess that even though he might think that you can't trust people, Maybe let's leave in a little bit of doubt in his life and hopefully also in his mind that some people you can actually trust. That's great to hear. And as one of the caretakers points out, he does have a lot of potential in the world, right? He's a smart, charming kid who, with a big heart. Do you have any other updates on any of the other children, especially even Sasha? Sasha, along with Kolya, she was taken to first of the western parts of Ukraine at the very dawn of the new invasion, the 24th of February. And then she and Kolya were taken into Europe to stay in a temporary orphanage there, where they've been staying ever since. And just recently, Kolya was taken back to Ukraine. Sasha is still in Europe at the temporary orphanage there. And she's been going through a, a rough period in time. Also partly because Sasha was supposed to be adopted by an elderly lady, but that elderly lady changed her mind. She got cold feet maybe a couple of months after we left the shelter. So she ended up in an orphanage also. But as we understand from the psychologist, she's taken up gymnastics and that seems to be helping her working through a little bit of the sadness there. And with Eva, we lost touch with her when the war broke out or when the new flare-up of the invasion happened. We lost touch with her for a long period of time, but we recently just got it back actually. And we found out that she's in the Viv and we're trying to see what we can do. What's her situation and is there any way we can help her? Simon, I think this is a beautiful film. I was deeply moved by it. As I said, it's very well observed. You have these amazing characters, but you also are able to craft a story that really brings us into their world. And we feel like we're there with them. We feel like we're waiting in those months with them. We feel like we're very bound up in their fate. So thank you for this film. Congratulations on being shortlisted for the Oscar and good luck going forward. Thanks a lot, Michael. 
do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that, that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? One of my favorite films is an American movie. It's been so instrumental in a lot of the ways that I go about starting up projects and what I look for and everything. So I would definitely say that's one of my favorite films of all time. Thank you.